Father, as we look at your word and our, uh, at the life and the heart of this awesome man, Paul, Father, may we be overwhelmed by his view of you. And Father, may that become our view of you. Lord, help us to hear this day, not this man, but by your spirit, the authority of your word, find fertile soil. To your glory and praise. Amen. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 17 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also to your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are besides ourselves... It is for God, and if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of God controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. We are looking at the Apostle Paul, and just in this segment, segment is dealing with his integrity. One of the things that I have watched diminish in the body of Christ over the years is the integrity of the ministers. Okay, when I speak of ministers, we all have seen the scandals, and that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, uh, I, what I'm talking about is that if you're saved, you're in ministry. Okay, and because you're in ministry, the thing that you have to be very aware of is your integrity. One of the things that you will witness that you have seen in the Apostle Paul's life, those of you have been through this text, and the things that you will see once you step into the ministry is that if they cannot find sin in your life, if they cannot find false doctrine in your life, then they're going to attack your integrity. And you have all bore witness that it doesn't matter whether there's any proof or not. All I have to do is make an allega allegation. Okay, that is the single greatest flaw in ministry because that is the one thing that a minister of Jesus Christ needs to defend. All right, now in Paul's case here, his is a little more difficult than ours. Okay, and the reason that I say that is he had no New Testament to validate what he was doing. Here, I can throw the Bible up and says, thus saith the Lord. Okay, Paul didn't have that. And so what would happen, and if you look at his ministry, go to the book of Acts or any of the letters, you will see that where he ministered, not long after he left, false would come in. And what they want to do is try to get you to doubt the teacher, because if I doubt the teacher, then I can doubt the teaching. All right. Then you show you sow discourse, disunity, schisms and all the rest of the stuff that you see in the body of Christ today. It had already, we went through 1 Corinthians, remember? And one of the things that was killing the Corinthian church was they had a pride issue. And I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Christ. I am of Cephas. And see, you've already got the schisms there. And it comes from a foundation of pride. Well, if you've already got a pride issue in there, and then I can make you doubt the teachings of the Apostle Paul, I win. 
And that's what the false do. Why? We want to sow, they want to sow disunity in the body of Christ. All right? The Godhead is not disunified. All right? And it's represented where? Here on earth. In the church. I grew up years ago thinking that doctrine divides. Okay? What I have learned is doctrine unites. Because when we're all on the same page, you can't move us. Right? See, we've got to understand something. I hear church leaders praying that there would be unity in the church. Okay? The problem with that prayer is it's already here. All right? If you're not diligent, rightly dividing truth, then you're susceptible to the errors. You're susceptible to disunity, to division. Okay? And it's easy. Listen, I shared this in a Sunday school class. It is easy to say, I don't know. Right? There's nothing shameful with that. Because if you make up an answer, it won't be long when God will show that you made up an answer. All right? Because I've said it before. I don't know. I have no idea. So what I'm showing you here, there's six points in that outline. And what we've been going through is, why do you defend integrity? The first one was verse 11. For the Lord. It's for the Lord. Verse 11 says, because I have a fear of the Lord. The word fear there means reverence. I have an awe of God. Okay. See, if you have an awe of God, then you will worship. Okay. I watch people go through some kind of liver quiver thing and they don't have an awe of God. They're there on an emotional high. That isn't an awe of God. I'm talking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. All right. And it means that I have an awe. I look at him and, you know, it's like I, sh- I shared earlier. The waters fit in the hollow of his hand. The span of his hand is creation. He knows the hairs of my head and when a sparrow falls. If that doesn't cause you awe, what's going to? You see what I'm trying to get at? And so Paul had a fear of the Lord. Therefore, I persuade men. Okay, I'm trying to seek your approval. And the issue here is his integrity. Why? Because my integrity has been manifest to God and my conscience is clear. But now I want my integrity to be reminded to you and that your conscience remembers who I am and what I did. 18 months I was with you, teaching day and night, living among you. How could you fall into the deceit? Okay, the other reason is for the church. Verse 12. We are not commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. So you'll have an answer. Okay, now he's talking to the church. All right, an answer for what? An answer to those people who take pride in appearance and not in heart. All right, that's what the false do. All right, the false came in and they're worried about appearance. You know, if you go to seminary, they used to teach classes on church church architecture. And I kept thinking, well, that's kind of cool. You know, how, you know, how does the, the body look? What is an apostle? What is a prophet? What is an evangelist? No, man, it's how does a building look? Okay, they used to make, they used to make them so they were like praying hands. Uh, it, they used to make them so that if you look at it from 
Above them, they look like a cross. And these are all important things. I'm sitting there going, well, that's the goofiest thing I ever heard in my life. Okay? All right? Because when I thought about church architecture, I would think that, okay, the, the role of the apostles, the prophets, the teachers, pastors, and, and things like that, because that's how it's built. Sorry. Okay? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. It's kind of goofy. But anyway. But, but I watch a lot of people. Okay, who will put more into the appearance than into the heart. All right, that's the body of Christ. You know what? Uh, I hear church growth. I get information probably weekly on how to grow the church. Okay, Uh, I am convinced that in my reading of Scripture, nowhere in there does it say I'm supposed to grow the church. (laughs) Sorry. All right, but I am to instruct. And the Holy Spirit grows the people so that they can stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus based on the information that is gleaned from the Word of God. That now you have grown the church. You are to, The Great Commission is to what? Make disciples. Make learners. Now that's a good thing if you've got something to teach. All right? But a lot of people want to make disciples, but they don't know nothing. And the the problem is, they haven't read it. It isn't rocket science. This book is not that confusing. Just read it. You know what? You may even have to read it more than once. I don't know. know. I know I have to read it way more than once, but I'm slower. Okay? But if you read it, and, and there's a context... And if you read through the context, it is self-explained. You do not have to be a theologian. Well, have you studied Greek? Yes. Really? Yeah, I know why it's a dead language. Okay? You know, it's stuff like that. Read the book. Why? Because it is our responsibility, each one of us, to strengthen someone else. There's always going to be someone who's a little farther ahead of you. There's always going to be someone who's a little bit farther behind you. Okay, when you stay in the book, you keep a teachable spirit. If you've got a teachable spirit, then God will teach you. And if God can teach you, then you will be a teacher. Okay, no, and I'm not saying that everybody line up for Sunday school teachers. No, you will teach everybody. You will teach everybody. All right. So it's for the church. It's for truth. Verse 13. For we are besides ourselves. I already showed you what that word does in the original language. It means I'm insane. That's what it means. I'm, I'm insane. I'm insane about God. Okay, why? Go back to the fear of the Lord. Okay? I am in such awe of who is God. Whoa. Hey, did you guys see the... They got some new video out of a tornado on the sun. Huh? If you can get it, check it out. It's, it, it, it'll freak you out because then they, the, the one that I've seen, it has a map here on the side, shows you the height of it and then the width of it. It was wider than the planet Earth. Okay? And its sustained winds were 183,000 miles an hour. And all I kept thinking was God went, What's this? <laughs> <laughs> Let's stir up some stuff. (laughs) 
But that's just amazing to me. When I look at space, I start realizing how big God is. And I, I just love that stuff. But I, if you can get online and find it, it shows it's called a tornado on the sun. And then they start giving you some numbers on it and you start realizing, well, that's like a seriously big tornado. Yes, it's wider than the planet Earth. Yes, that's a big tornado. And then a sustained wind of 186,000 miles an hour. Um, gusty. The guy says, well, that would be... Dude, you, you can't stand on the sun. Do you understand that? <laughs> tornado be least of your problems. Anyway. If I look at that, then how can I not be insane for God? But then he says this. He says, and if we are of sound mind, sober, controlled, restrained, it is for, for you. It's for you. So both of those are based on who is the true God and what is he about. Okay. I, I have done this myself and I've been times I've been in my study and have been pouring through scriptures for several hours and just sort of in a state of, whoa. And then somebody will come in with, you know, can, it, can you maybe want the food closet or something like that. And all of a sudden you come back down and at first you just want to, and then you're like, probably better not. Okay. It's, it's like Sundays for me. Okay. All week long. I'm digesting scriptures and the things of the Lord. Okay. And then on Sunday, it's sort of boom. All right. And then Monday, I'll start filling her back up again. All right. Which brings us for the Savior. We started this last week. It's probably going to take me two more weeks maybe to get through this. Verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Okay, this text is referring to Christ's love for the Apostle Paul, for Christ's love for us. All right. And that love so overwhelmed the Apostle Paul, he says it controls us. And and it literally means it is putting a pressure on me that has an action on the other side. Okay. And and one of the things that I, I would ask each of you to think about is do you even grasp an inkling, a twinkling of how much love Jesus Christ has for you? Because your life and your actions will be directly linked to your understanding and or lack of understanding of that love. It is hard for me to get myself in a position of importance when I think about the love of Christ. All right. The things that come against me, the things that I have to deal with on a moment by moment, daily grind thing are trivial. When I think about the love that Jesus Christ has for me. And yes, it's for all the saints. But when I take it the way the apostle Paul did here, he's looking at himself. That freaked him out. I am the chief of sinners. I am a killer of Christians. I am a blasphemer. And yet, His love, He died for me when I was yet a sinner. And that to His grave was the thing that Paul just said, Whoa, 
which means that you can't move him. You ain't going to sway him. And part of the reason that he was worried about his integrity is that if I'm not believed, what's the point of my ministry and how could I ever be in that position knowing the love of Christ? Okay? Paul's life was pressured by the love of Christ and that pressure calls the heart of thanksgiving and the thanksgiving was mandated and pointed straight at the Lord. And that pressure was there to cause Paul to defend his integrity. Okay, now what, look what he says there. It says, having concluded this. Okay, now this is one of those things. I know a lot of people who know a lot of things about the Bible. Okay. But they're not settled conclusions. All right. I I told you guys, and many of you have known me for a long time, I have a love for history. History is just a fascinating thing for me. All right. How many of you ever heard Bible stories? Okay. You know, that's, that's a lie. That's historical fact. Historical fact. I've read Macbeth for no apparent reason, but I've read it. Okay? That's a story. Okay? Job is historical truth. Kings is historical truth. In a lot of these cases, there's archaeological evidence that proves these things. Okay? It isn't a story. Did you hear the story about John the Baptist? No. I know of John the Baptist, but I also know of Abraham Lincoln. Right? And one of the things that I've watched in the church is there's people who have a myriad of Bible verses, but they don't have a settled conclusion. They have not come to a conviction of that text. I have listened to pastors and teachers in the past, and I will hear them make statements that is like the proverbial fingernails on a chalkboard. I'm not really sure what this means, but... And as soon as I hear that, why would your listeners listen? I don't understand it. If you don't know what it says and you're not convicted of it, sit down. See, I was very gentle at saying sit down. I don't really want to tell you what goes through my head when I hear that. Because we are to show ourselves workers approved, rightly dividing truth. In that, you will come to a settled Conviction. Why? It's Christ, people. And when you think about his love for you, how can you not have a settled conviction over that? When I was in Russia, I told you guys this, that uh, 
under Stalin, they had removed Christmas. And when Perestroika took off and Glasnost and all that other stuff, uh, they brought Christmas back. But if you ask a Russian, an average Russian, what is Christmas, they'll tell you that it is St. Nick's birthday. Okay, they have uh, very few Russians really know who, I mean, even those who are in the Orthodox Church have any idea who Jesus is. Okay, but you know what's an amazing thing? Stalin had taken and removed Christ's birth. Okay, so you have a, basically almost a generation and a half who never celebrated Christmas. Okay, but you know what he didn't remove? He didn't deal with? Easter. You ask any Russian, what is Easter? You know what they'll tell you? The resurrection of God's son. I'm not sure you can get that in America. Something to do with some rabbit and chocolate eggs or something. We have to come to a settled conviction. And, and you know what? I love you guys. But I can't do that. I can't make you have a settled conviction. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. And I tell you what, you don't spend any time in his word, you'll never get a conviction, which means that anything that comes along, guess what? You'll be tossed to and fro with every wind. So we come to that conviction. Paul had come to that conviction. He came in a process that had given him that conviction. And the conviction he states right there for you. One died for all. Therefore, all died. Paul explains to us why this love of Christ is so powerful, why this love puts so much pressure on me. Because I have come to the settled conviction that Christ died for all. Therefore, all died. Okay, now, just a cursory reading of that, that thing is either very confusing or very simple, and yet either one of those conclusions, I would say you're wrong. Because when I read it, it is amazing to me. Okay? Many think they understand this verse. Trust me, I've read commentaries and I watch about a half a verb on this thing, and they get a little half a paragraph that says, there you go, to and I'm sitting there going, Really? Really? One died for all. All right. In the Old Testament. Okay. The Old Covenant. Many died for an individual. Do you ever think about that? The offerings of animals. History says... That on the Passover of Jesus' crucifixion, conservative number, 1.1 million sheep were slaughtered for the Passover. That's a lot of animals. That's a lot of animals. If you go to the Temple Mound, you'll find it still exists. You can still find it. You can find the drainage ditches where all the blood would go down into the um, Kidron Valley. The Kidron Stream Wadi right there. And they would all funnel down to different areas and as it's coming out of, out of the altar of sacrifice. And that night that Jesus walked out of the mountain, went over to the Mount of Olives, he had had to cross that Kidron. And when he crossed that, that thing's going to be running red with the, la- the blood of lambs that he knew that he was getting ready to fulfill. 
Many dying for one is the old covenant. One individual. Now, all of a sudden, he's Christ. And he completely reverses it. One dying for all. It's a mind-boggling concept. Think about it. Mind-boggling concept. The writer of Hebrews says the bloods of bulls and goats could not take away sin. But the death of one did. Christ, by one offering, perfected those who are sanctified, the writer of Hebrews tells us. A single sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Okay, do you you see there's some importance to this? That single sacrifice accomplished what millions and millions and millions and millions of life never could. Never could. There's no need for the daily sacrifices. Daily sacrifices. Did you know that? We always think about, do you know that the blood offering bowl had no base to it? It's about that big around. Okay. Made of gold. Comes to a point. And I'm talking point. And you know what? The priest had to carry that thing 24 hours a day because the blood offering of the animal that was slain, its throat was cut, it was poured into that, and it would be taken over to the bronze and altar, and it was thrown on there, and it would be a burnt offering up to God of that innocent blood of that animal, whether it was a dove, a goat, a lamb, a bull. And you never stopped. That's why you had the priesthood. It was a guaranteed job. Dude, I am so glad that I never didn't live under that economy. I'd never leave the temple area. I'd always be paying a sin offering consistently. Why? As soon as you did a sin offering, you'd walk out, somebody step on your bare foot in a sandal. What are you going to do? Get another dove. <laughs> All right? But that's what they're doing. And it had to go on. The daily offerings over and over millions and millions of animals. And there's no need for that anymore. I do not need a sacrifice for the family. I do not need a sacrifice for the nation. I do not need a sacrifice for me. It is done. It is finished. In a place of benefit is what it means. And that benefit is on behalf of all. Okay, I'm going to spend a little time with this because I want you to see that there's an emphasis on this. Chapter 3, verse 13 of the letter to the Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. Now, this is what's on Paul's mind. Okay, and and I I want you to think about this because it's got to go beyond, okay, one died for all. Okay, a very dear friend of our families uh, was in uh, Vietnam. Somebody had rolled a grenade into the middle of his company. He jumped on top of it and was killed, and nobody else was hurt in the company. Okay, one died for all. Not quite the same, is it? Let us hope not. Okay, I remember reading in the Civil War that 
the Union Army was trying to get troops together, and they were trying to get a draft together. But if you were of an affluent family, you could hire someone to go in your place. Okay, but you had to give a sum of money. You would negotiate it with your replacement, and that person would go off to war in your place, and you could give the money to to his family. All right, that's substitution, but it's not the same. If you think about athletics, there's times that you will have someone come in and take the place of a starter, and he will be a substitute. It's not the same thing. The one here is Christ. Christ showed his love while we were yet sinners. Okay. Christ died in our place. Okay. That is the substitution that Paul is thinking about here. Jesus. Now listen, you, I want you to get a handle on this. Jesus did not die as a martyr. Please understand that. Jesus did not die for a cause. All right? He didn't even do it to show a high level of ethics. You know, he was so devoted to God, his Father, that he gave his life. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He died as a substitute. He died in our place. He took the punishment that should have been for you and I. Listen, that's the basis of Christian theology of salvation. And you know what? Christians don't know that. How can you not know that? God died as our substitute. You, how can you not be overwhelmed by that? How can I allow anything in this world to get in the way of what? God died for me? Every other religion, you die for your God. Except Christianity. All right, this goes back a little ways. You can go through the whole Old Testament and see it. But the one that I want to share with you is Isaiah 53, beginning in thir- uh, just verses 3 and 4 and then a couple other places. He was, this is the Messianic uh, prophecy of Isaiah. He was despised and forsaken by the men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs, uh, our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Look at the end of verse 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all us all to what? Fall on him. Look at the end of verse 11. And he will bear their iniquities. Look at verse 12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressions. All right. 
Isaiah seen it coming. He says, Messiah is coming and he's going to die for us. He's going to take our iniquities. He's going to take our grief. He's going to take our sorrows. All that was due us. See the difference? God's wrath required death. I shared with you, we saw death. I saw death quite a bit this week. I don't like death. Um, I do understand it as a Christian. Uh, there's times that, you know what, I think it would be a lot easier if it was my death than have to stay here. But anyway, um, it, 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 it is very, tr- I don't have the words to describe it. De- death hurts me. Okay? And when I look at death, and, I, and it can be the death of a goldfish, it can be the death of a dog, a horse, uh, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, uh, a loved one, a son, a daughter, uh, a spouse. I always see that and say, that is the imposition of God's wrath and all of that anguish that is joined with that is fulfillment of God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath and died in our place. Why Paul can write to Thessalonians and says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. And I tell you that the dead in Christ will rise first and meet him in the cloud. And we who are still here will join them in the twinkling of an eye. Okay. What Jesus did satisfied the justice of God. If you've ever been in court, I don't recommend it either. But if you ever go to court, you will usually meet with the district attorney and they will immediately come up with a plea bargain. Okay? God has no plea bargains. God's wrath is just. It is right. He he does not grade on a curve. He does not give pardons unless you come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Then your penalty has been nailed to the cross by the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't, I want you to know how crucial this is. Go to John's gospel. You have the perfect sacrifice in our place. John's gospel, chapter six, verse 51, 651. Jesus speaking here. 651, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I will bring life to the world by my death. Kind of amazing. Even an unbeliever understood this. An enemy of Jesus Christ. A hater of Jesus Christ. The high priest Caiaphas. John's Gospel chapter 11. Verse 50. Flow of the text is verse 49. But one of them Caiaphas. The high priest that year said to them. You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account. That. That. It is expedient 
for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John tells us, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. That's amazing. It is expedient that you die for the nation. Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. Had no idea what he was saying. Christ died as a benefit in the place of the people of the world. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the gospel. And it's also in the epistles. Basically how I look at it, it is proclaimed in the Old Testament. It is explained in the gospel. And it is clear in the epistles. Let me show you another one. Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In the verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God to the death of his son. I mean, you can even take it over uh, chapter 14 of Romans. For Paul's telling us, even though we are free in Christ, don't use our freedom to cause a younger or weaker brother or sister to stumble. Chapter 14, verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Christ was a substitute. Christ was a substitute. And and it is more than... He paid the entire penalty. When he hangs on the cross and says, it is finished, he doesn't mean like close. Tell tell us die. It is completely perfected. There's nothing lacking. Your penalty is not lacking. It is paid in full. It's nailed to the cross. By the person of Jesus Christ. You know what is amazing to me about that? His love is so massive. He did that when we were still his enemy. We despised him. We forsook him. We blasphemed him. We shook our fists at him. First Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, 
we will live together with him. Go over just a little bit to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, that man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Go over just a little farther to another church leader, Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Paul telling Titus, looking for the blessed hope, the appearing unto glory of the great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. One that is amazing because of what he had to endure and what he had gone through and his shortcomings seem to be Manifest on a regular basis. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on a cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Peter also reiterates this in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You can see it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It, it, what I'm trying to for you to see is you don't have to be a theologian to see this everywhere. Okay. And again, he's not a martyr. He's a substitution. Listen, all of those millions and millions of sheep that were slain did nothing. Did nothing. How, how much holier were you went from that? None. How many doves? How many pigeons? How many goats? How many bullocks? And it never did a thing. It was a picture of what's coming. This is how you guys do it. It don't work. Let me show you that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I have a perfect sacrifice and I'll do it one time, one time only, and it will be for all. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, that should overwhelm us. We think about this day. I know churches all around this are... are throwing out palm branches and things and we're celebrating all this and we're missing the fact that he came into town. He set his face to Jerusalem like a flint to die in yours and my place. That is what we should be focusing on. That is amazing to me. I stand in all of that. I don't ever get a hold of it completely. I know who I am. I know what I am capable of. I know what I have done. And yet his love for me was so great that he says, no, I'll pay his penalty. And you know that ever since he did that, every time I make a stupid, stupid sin, 
he looks at the right at right at his father God and says, It's on my account. It's paid. That is amazing to me. The only way that death of Christ could benefit the sinner was by substitution. If he didn't die in our place, then we have to die for our sins and step into eternal death. But he died in our place. Do you see how crucial this is? And yet, I watch the church and it's flippant about it. Well, you know, he died in our place. Really? The death of Christ is meaningless apart from substitution. That's why Paul... That's why I believe I have concluded and I am convinced in this conviction. I have been swayed there. I am steadfast there. Therefore, I preach it and I teach it and I will never, ever waver. Ever. Though all forsake, I'm not. See why that's important? Okay. Now then, every one of you have heard this are now accountable to that truth. My prayer is that every one of you will come to a conclusion, to a steadfast, settled conviction. I do nothing to add to my salvation. And yet the love of Christ shown that he was my substitute, I now persuade men. See how that works? Because there is a growing awe of who is God. Having concluded this, Paul says, that one died for all, therefore all died. Paul was pressured. Paul was compelled. He was controlled. This love of Christ had for him. I have a settled conviction that one died for all. Died for me, the chief of sinners. Okay, now then. Who are the all? You'll have to stay tuned. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that on this glorious day of Palm Sunday we look at the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Our foundation, our passion, our awe. Father, may we take this and may you in the power of your spirit place it deep in our souls. Deep, Lord, that no matter what happens, that will never be moved. Father, When we think about the words, it is finished, may we smile knowing that our sin, those in the past, those in the present, those in the future, are even now paid for in full. What an awesome God. We love you. We praise you. In Christ's name, amen.